Amen. Please be seated. Turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Acts, chapter 16. I do have most of the passage there on the insert. This is one of those times where it's good to have your Bible open there because we'll look at some verses at the end that I couldn't squeeze in. Um, But we have an outline there for us as well to follow along with. We are now in the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. It's being told here in chapter 16. And he is a bit of a dream team of missionaries. It's himself, he has Silas, he has Timothy. Uh, These two go with him for the majority of the trip from what we can tell. And Luke has popped in on the trip now. We know by the way the first person is used here. Uh, But Luke pops back out for a while. Uh, He's writing the book of Acts. Um, But we have quite a a team here entering the city of Philippi, uh, the place where he wrote the letter to the Philippians. So this is where he first meets the Philippians. The first Christians uh, come to faith, and that church starts. A very short trip, very short visit to Philippi from Paul, but a very strong church gets founded. And this is the beginning of that church. It's also a picture of the kind of a snapshot of the way the mission trip worked as they went to these cities and had various encounters. You know there were dozens and dozens of encounters with individuals and groups where Paul preached the gospel and people came to faith. But in God's providence, there are several individuals picked out so we can see their story and we can understand how the expansion of God's church is working here in the book of Acts in this first century. The context for our passage, we'll start at verse 16 of chapter 16. I mean, he's already been to the city gate, the place where people gathered to pray. There was no Jewish synagogue, so that's where they went. Um, There are other things that happened at the city gate, um, legal affairs, business matters. This is where people would be, and Paul went there with Silas and met women there, preached the gospel. Lydia came to faith, this businesswoman from the east came to faith listening to Paul explain the gospel. Um, He would explain the gospel to anyone who would listen, and even people who wouldn't listen, he would still explain the gospel. That's Paul. That's his style and his approach, and it gives us courage ourselves to be clear and urgent about getting that message out. Now we pick up on a different day at the same place, though, and he is preaching the gospel there again, and he meets someone. Let's follow now as I read Acts 16. I'll read verse 16 to verse 34. And always, remember, this isn't just a normal book. This is the inspired Word of God, and it's for us, the people of God, to hear with aid from the Spirit of God. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. 
And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, your work of kingdom expansion told here is both encouraging and emboldening. Please give us your Spirit's aid to understand the events here recorded and how a better comprehension of your word should impact our lives. Thank you for your simple, timeless, powerful, and transforming gospel. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. By now, here we are together, 16 chapters into the book of Acts, over halfway through this wonderful uh, telling of the story of the early church, the expansion of the church. And so far, we've seen a huge diversity of events, different kinds of people that are met along the way, all sorts of, of amazing things happening in this early phase of the church's life and development. Yet, despite all of this diversity in action, there is a constant, steady, anchor message of the person of Christ who continues to be preached. Each encounter is different between the apostles and the missionaries with the people they encounter. Every encounter is different. Uh, One is to a rich woman from Asia. The next is to a poor girl who is enslaved by people and possessed by a demon. You couldn't get more polar opposite in these situations. With this new episode, though on the whole, we see Paul preaching the gospel really to every kind of person, which is a newer thing compared to the bulk of the Old Testament about Israel in particular. Now it's opened up. But we also see the same message of the gospel going forward from the apostle. The gospel is for every person. It's to be preached to everyone, no matter where they're from, what they've been through, what they've done, or what's been done to them, what position in life they have what country they live in, whatever it may be, everyone should hear the message of Christ. And that's the commission given by Jesus. And Paul's energy is largely gained from that commission. He is trying to fulfill that commission in his life. That's his view of it. So he's going to keep going until he presses the uttermost parts of the world with this message. 
And that message, simply put, is faith alone in Christ alone. This is a gospel for every person. We see that. If you look with me at verse 14, back a few passages before what we have just looked at, we'll remember the first person just briefly. This person, Lydia, who we met last time, maybe not named Lydia, but from the region of Lydia and Thyatira, and she was a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart when Paul came to the city gate to preach. So she's the first person who's converted to Christ in Philippi that we have on record. She was baptized, her household as well. So the gospels preached to both men and both women. We see that immediately. The gospels preached to the rich and to the poor. Next, the subject of ministry that we looked at today, this gospel ministry, is an even more unlikely person, as it turns out. Look at verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, that's the city gate again, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. You remember, in the Greek world, slavery was rampant. Some estimates were half the population were enslaved in some way. But this particular slave girl had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. You can kind of tell what's going on here. Um, They're using her, they're exploiting her as a bit of a freak show to make money. It says she had a spirit of divination. Literally, in the Greek, it's a python spirit, a pythoness spirit, and that's right, it's connected to the snake, the python. Um, This comes from um, Greek pagan religion. Apollo, in particular, who had a temple dedicated to him, or they dedicated a temple to Apollo there in Philippi. There were oracles there, or soothsayers, or fortune tellers, who would use snakes in their various ceremonies to supposedly tell people their fortune. Um, John Stott puts it in historical context. Apollo was thought to be embodied in a snake and to inspire his female devotees with clairvoyance, although he notes other people thought of them just as ventriloquists. Some of them were sneaky shysters and some were real cultists. In this case, though, we know she was possessed by a demon. And she was able in some way to forecast futures, the future of people, or for money to tell what might happen, clairvoyant, whatever it may be. That's what people believed about this girl. And they would pay the owner for her to do some kind of looking into the future on their behalf. She was known, no doubt, in this area. Verse 17, she followed Paul and us, Luke writing, she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And in this she kept doing for many days, not just once, not at just one gathering where she would yell from time to time. For many days she followed them yelling this. Now at first glance, it's kind of odd, isn't it? She's telling the truth. The demon is telling the truth through her. Um, Why do you suppose a demon would take that tactic? We don't know exactly, but maybe one reason is You know, people knew she was a bit of a circus show for these owners. And so they didn't take what she said necessarily seriously. It was entertainment for them. And if she's endorsing Paul's message, maybe that's a way of, in a reverse way, discrediting his actual message. The other most obvious reason is just trying to disrupt things, Uh, just trying to mess things up. You know, if you've ever been in a church service um, where something would continually disrupt, uh, it's hard to pay attention to what's happening when, with someone's saying when something keeps disrupting. 
So she's doing this. She's just blurting this out. Maybe there's a battle inside of her about, with this demon and trying to fight it. Who knows? We don't really have that picture laid out for us. We just know, as verse 18 says, this she kept doing for many days. What comes next is what you might expect. At first glance, though, you'll probably think like I thought. Paul having become greatly annoyed. It's kind of funny when I hear it. It's almost like, you know, an older brother becoming greatly annoyed with a younger brother or an older sister, younger sister, or, or whoever may annoy you. And annoy has to do with more kind of irritate. Uh, but the word here in the original language is something more profound. Paul having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Greatly annoyed might be better translated. He was deeply distressed or greatly grieved. Now, he was no doubt annoyed with the constant interruptions as he's trying to speak. But there's also the state of the girl that started to probably wear on him. As he could see, this wasn't just a matter of her being uh, deranged. She was demon-possessed. He felt terrible for her. And then seeing the exploitation from these slave owners, the whole of the situation grieved him, no doubt. And he comes to a place where that's enough, and he turns and he casts out the demon. Well, this woman, this slave girl, doesn't fit any demographic you can think of. She covers a bunch of them, many of them rare. And here the gospel goes, and it doesn't say explicitly that she converted, but in other cases where demons are cast out, the person comes to faith. And most scholars agree it's, it's a way of saying she's relieved from her evil spirit, and now she comes to God. She's been saved by God. The gospel, though, is clearly going forth when she's there. That's what she's trying to interrupt, and that's really the message. The gospel goes to everyone, to all people. Stott, who I referred to earlier, I'll quote one more time. He said, it would be hard to imagine a more disparate group than the businesswoman, the slave girl, and the jailer. Racially, socially, and psychologically, they were a world apart. Yet all three were changed by the same gospel and were welcomed into the same church. These are the founding members of the church at Philippi. And that's the power of the gospel, what it does to change people and unify people. And the message of the gospel, even the message itself, brings a unity. It brings a common thought and appreciation for one person, the person of Christ. Across all kinds of boundaries, the gospel is preached and unites us. Despite all the the varied, complicated, and messed up backgrounds we all have. The gospel is preached to all, and when it saves us, we're brought into a unity that is inexplicable to people who look on. I mean, even our church, it doesn't draw from a huge metro, in the metro area, not a huge swath, but big enough. And you have a diverse story. Every one of you has something that's really different from the person next to you. Um, If we had time to hear all your stories, we have that opportunity often as the elders when we receive new members. It's incredible the stories that people will tell us, what God has done and brought them through. And there's there's a hundred of those stories right in this group, I'm sure. But the gospel unites us, and it's preached to all of us, and that's what brings us into this place of unity where we find ourselves sensing the fellowship we have, even even though we're different. That's That's the heart of God. That's what the Abrahamic covenant meant to fulfill through Christ, that this would be spread to all. And no matter what our boundaries would be, through Christ those boundaries would come down. When Paul writes to the Galatians, he says something that's often misunderstood or taken the wrong way, but taken in the way we're talking now, that it doesn't matter what you're defined as by the world 
or what ways we identify, in Christ we are unified. He wrote to the Galatians, there is neither Jew or Greek. He's already gone to the Jews, now he's speaking and preaching to the Greeks. There's neither slave nor free. He just preached to a slave girl and he preached to a free woman who was a businesswoman. There's no male and female. He's preaching to both. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Yes, those outer labels may still continue. There are functions often that we carry out. But in Christ, on the essential level, we are unified. We are one. And that's the beauty of the gospel message bringing such unity to people who are normally divided. Now, what is the message that brings this salvation, that brings us this unity? We find it clearly in the passage. God caused an earthquake so severe that while they were in the prison, the doors moved, the, the building moved in such a way as to shake uh, the doors open and the stocks that were on their ankles, the chains from the walls fell from there. We're not told exactly how they unloosed, but this earthquake was so severe that it caused them to go free if they wanted to. They were free from their restraints. Verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Seems extreme. Now these jailers, often in the first century, were former military people that were too old to be in the army anymore. Still relatively young though. Still pretty crusty, pretty warrior-like, and would fit the bill to keep a prison or a jail. Um, not all the, modern, all the modern equipments and things that keep people in. Um, it really depended on their ability to seal it with their own personal uh, abilities, and then also to make sure that the jail itself was secure. That was their job. You might say they had one job, and that job is keep the prisoners in the prison. And this jailer was to do that. Um, when he wakes and finds out that the doors are open, he's assuming immediately they had to have leave. They left. They probably shook them open themselves in the, in the earthquake, and they left. And now he knows what his fate is. He has failed in his job. And so either by the executioner's sword or his own hand and by his own honor, he is going to do what is normal among the Roman soldiers that would fall into this situation, take his own life. And it's not pretty. I mean, to fall on your sword, it's too long uh, to do something very easily and swiftly. Often the, the whole sword will be turned around, placed right at the base of the heart, and they would plunge themselves forward on it and die. This is how they would do it, still with honor, having failed to keep the prisoners. Paul, a Roman citizen, they don't know that yet, but a Roman citizen knows the laws, knows the customs. And so in verse 28, Paul cries with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Imagine hearing that voice, how confusing it would be to that jailer, but how relieving it would be as well. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. He's trembling because he knows Paul is there for a message he's preaching. He's not ignorant to the message Paul had been speaking. He'd been in Philippi several days, and he'd been preaching, and he knows what the charges are, and so he knows Paul, is, and he hears them. Um, he knows Paul is someone different than the normal prisoner. Um, the man has been beaten with his friend, and here they are in the jail cell, chained together in terrible pain, singing hymns. So he knows something's different about this man, what he believes and what he preaches. And so he is in awe with what's happening, and he falls to his feet, verse 30. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
he asks the most important question for everybody to ask and for everyone to have answered. It's important to ask it because if you ask it, you're, humanly speaking, almost there. If you're not asking the question as if to say, I don't need to be saved, that's a massive problem. But if you're asking the question, it shows you know you need to be saved. What must I do to be saved? And then, of course, to answer the question, what could be more important on earth, in the universe for that matter, than to ask and answer this question? He brought them out, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Scholars have interestingly debated, and I want you to think about this in its context as we read it, what's just happened. Scholars have debated what exactly the jailer is asking. It seems, uh, you might say at first blush, uh, he thinks he might still be in trouble because of what's happened, and perhaps he's afraid he'll still be executed, and he's saying, what can I do to get saved? I don't think that's likely because he has already been spared of the, I mean, at this point he can overpower them, or the other guards can overpower them, and they're back to being locked up. Um, There's something more profound at work, it seems. But exactly what he's asking isn't so important as the answer that Paul gives. It's almost like Paul saying, this is the way you should be asking that question, and here's the right answer in the most profound way possible. So he answers, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, does that mean if he believes, then everybody in his family is automatically saved? No, it doesn't mean that. We can see that by other episodes, and even how this works itself out. But for now, let's just look at the simple answer. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. The way of salvation is belief in Christ. That's the way of salvation for everyone. And if you come to faith in Christ, those who are under your influence or authority, if the case may be, or in your sphere of relationship, they will benefit from your coming to know because if you really have come to know, you will express that in some fashion. It's different for how everyone might express it. The time it takes, I'm not putting pressure on you to say, if you haven't, go say it right now. But at some point, if you're really saved, saved in the way it's meant here, saved from the just penalty of your sin through Christ, you're going to have to tell somebody. Not out of duty, although it is a duty, you're just going to want it. If you love somebody, you're going to tell them how they can be saved too. Verse 32. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. I want to take just a brief, very brief excursus to mention something because it's come up three times now in the book of Acts. You remember back with the story of Cornelius, he and his household mentioned those in his house came to faith through him coming to faith, or at least the house was described as having believed on the gospel in a collective sense. And then with Lydia, we saw the same thing. She came to faith and then her household also And now we have it again with this jailer. This comes from a concept that, it comes from the Old Testament, but it was understood in antiquity as well, the way that households were often dealt with or thought of. And a household doesn't just mean blood relatives. It means anybody that's in the sphere of your authority or impact or effect. It can be blurry, but if there's someone that is constantly associated with you, 
people might say, that's part of your household or your range of influence, you might even say. It was pretty intimate. I mean, you, they would live together often or within proximity, um, all sorts of ways in which household members might be identified. But it's a little bigger than just your immediate family that's being spoken of here. So back in the book of Genesis, when God comes to Abraham in chapter 12 and makes him the promise to make him a great nation, and that he'll bless the world through him, and that his descendants will outnumber the, the pieces of sand on the, on, the sea, on the beach and then the stars in the heaven. Um, then he speaks in chapter 15 about applying a sign that identifies himself with God, and then all those who are in his household should have this mark as well. It's, it's a statement of God's promises to them. Then they come to Genesis 17, and listen to the wording. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Some of your versions will say your household. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Then later in Genesis 17, and all the men of this house, those born in the house and those bought with money, that's his household, from a foreigner were circumcised with him. So when they came into Abraham's sphere of household, they had to have the mark of the promise of God. It wasn't a mark of individual salvation as such. It was the mark of the promise of God for salvation. And circumcision was a sign of, of cutting, away the, cutting away the flesh, which was meant cutting away that which is sinful. That's the way it was described as an object lesson in antiquity. That's what was understood. So Abraham, when people come into your household, I've given you faith, you believe in me, have everyone marked with the same thing. And this will continually preach to them the message of their need for Christ. They can't shake that. They'll know that it's there. That's their, their marker. That's the Old Testament version of it. Then we get to the New Testament, and you have Peter saying in Acts chapter 2, this promise is to you and your children, believe and be baptized. And so similarly, that audience would have understood as they come to faith, that we should mark our households with this same sign, it will always remind and preach to them the promise of God to wash away our sins through Christ. So we come to the jailer. It makes sense now. It's not so important as to whether every individual member of the jailer's household kneeled down and prayed the prayer. It has to do with the message of the gospel being preached. The head of the household believed. He shared the message with those in the household, and they were marked with the sign of baptism. Back to the passage, verse 31. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. It didn't say that all of them necessarily, that the household rejoiced that he believed in God because the whole household received a blessing from this. So it's drawing back in language that we would know from the Old Testament, and it's putting it into its new covenant terms. Interestingly, Paul wrote in Corinthians, um, at the very beginning of the book, he's doing his introduction, and he says, he's trying to, by the way, in Corinthians, tell everyone to quit getting around whoever baptized you. That doesn't matter. We're all in Christ. But some people are saying, Apollos, he baptized me, and so-and-so baptized me, and Paul says, you know what? I didn't baptize anyone except for the household of Stephanus. Only one household. It's just interesting how he uses that term again when he's talking about the baptisms he performed when he was in Corinth. Now, that's the end of that excursus. I would like us to go back to the important question. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Believe. 
What does believe mean? It means to trust. Believe means to have faith in, to rest in something, to depend on something. On what? On Christ. It's not just faith in anything. Don't just have, you hear when people say that, just have faith. In what? What does that mean? Just have faith. You just got to believe. In what? It's in Christ. It's trust in Christ. It's believe in Christ. It's depend on Christ. Rest in Christ. What about Christ? So believe is the instrument to lay hold of Christ. Who is Christ? I mean, it's a simple statement. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe, know what that means, in Jesus. Jesus means salvation. Joshua, the one who saves. He is the Messiah. So you have to know who Jesus is, and you have to know why you need Jesus. Now, the statement is absolutely all-encompassing, but we have to know what believe means. Rest in him. In who? Jesus, the one who God sent as our substitute to be our sin, to take on our sin. He became sin, our sin, so we would not have it on us. And then God poured his just wrath upon Christ, not us. And then when we believe on Christ, he's paid for our sins. He gives us his righteousness so we can stand before God. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Saved from what? The wrath of God that we deserve. That's what it means. I got saved means you're saved from the just wrath that you deserve. Now, if a person doesn't even recognize they need salvation, that's a tragic difficulty only God can remedy. But anyone here who is asking the question, what must I do to be saved, that indicates you know you need salvation. And you know it's from your sins. You know you've done too much to be right with God. What can I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. That means transfer your trust onto him. He's paid for your sins. You are accepted in him. So now, right now, you stand before your Father in heaven in Christ. He never sees you alone again, and you should be thankful for that. He sees Jesus. And when you die, the moment you die, you won't die on your own, standing before God's judgment and having to explain yourself. You will not do that. No believer will have that happen. You will stand before God, and Christ will be right there, united to you, and it will be easy for the Father to accept you because he loves his Son, whom you are in because you trust in him. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. It is that simple. As we consider this message of the gospel, let's all be exceedingly clear on what it is so that we can share it. It's not believe in Jesus and be baptized to be saved. That's not where baptism comes in. It's not believe in Jesus and do this certain thing. Join this church. Follow this list of things you have to do. Believe in the Lord Jesus and perform this pilgrimage or, or give this amount of money or do this kind of thing or that or the other. It's believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It is the hallmark of the New Testament's teaching that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. And it's the thing that ignited the Reformation. It was a call back after years of obscurity, of years of faith plus this, this, and this, and the this, this, and this we can never do. And it was a call back to, wait, that's not the gospel. That's not good news at all. We're all in trouble on that basis. But the Reformation rediscovers the gospel that the New Testament preaches, that the apostles taught, the golden strain that goes through it all, and we have this reburgeoning of the gospel that goes on today. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Spurgeon says it like only he can. The road to heaven, my brethren, is by faith in Christ Jesus. It is not by well-doing that you can be saved, though it is by ill-doing that you can be damned if you do not put your trust in Christ. Nothing that you can do can save you, albeit that after you are saved, It will be your delightful privilege to walk in the ways of God and to keep his commandments. 
Yet all your own attempts to keep the commandments previous to faith will but sink you deeper into the mire and will be by no means a contribution to your salvation. The one road to heaven is by faith in Christ. That's the gospel. That's the answer to what must I do to be saved. You know, the gospel has consequences in your life. It'll change you. Um, Hopefully we won't endure what they endured, but you might, we might. Um, And what we see in Paul's life and in the life of those who receive the gospel, believe on it, is an honest expression of what we might expect at some level. The first thing it does for you, though, is it gives you a courage you didn't have previously. And I know as you're sitting here, if you're like me, I think, man, I don't know what I'd do if I were a believer right now in Nigeria, or if I were a believer in North Korea right now, or when many China right now, any of the places where Christians are under terrible duress, terrible hardship and tribulation. Um, I believe the scripture teaches, and I believe by the testimony of people who have been in those places and lost people in them or endured things themselves, I believe that God gives his children the grace they need when the time comes. And we are, let's be honest, we are extremely soft in America. We just are. I mean, right now our biggest concern is, is it a little humid in here? You know what I mean? Honestly, we are soft. That's not a beat down on us. I'm not saying we should feel guilty about it. I'm not wanting you to go, uh, go home and, uh, you know, don't eat for three days just to feel the pain. I'm not asking you to do any of that. I'm just saying, admit, we're soft. So don't you worry a little bit silently that if the persecution did come, would I be able to up, stand up under it? I'm saying you could, you will. You will be able to. And it may come. But when it does, if it does, you will be able to because you know the gospel's true and they could do whatever to you outwardly and it will not change you. It will not change your eternal reality. In fact, your eternal reality is so real that you're willing to lay your life down for it if it comes to it. And I believe everyone here who trusts in Christ will be given the grace to do so if they need to, if God calls them to do it. That's a consequence of the gospel's action in your life and we see it play itself out. I know these are apostles we're talking about, but you know, Paul zipped up his robe the same way. Well, he didn't probably have a zipper, but he put his robe on the same way I do. I mean, it's not that much different than us. I mean, they're people too with all sorts of failures in their lives. And yet God calls them to do and go through something because of the gospel. That is hard for us to imagine. Look what it is. Verse 19. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged him into the mar- them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. It seems like Timothy and Luke got off on this. They were not called in. Maybe they just recognized since Timothy was only half Jewish, they didn't count him in the same way. And of course, Luke being Greek. But here's Paul and Silas. They get dragged in. These men are Jews and are disturbing our city. Now, they don't stop to ask him any questions and find out they're not just Jews. They're Roman citizens. This is going to be a problem for them later. But there's no time to talk. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Because they are Christians and because of their actions, they are being persecuted. And their actions are the throwing out the demon and so causing them financial duress. And so now they're receiving this attention for what they are teaching. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. They're calling people to worship the true God. In Roman law said to worship the Roman pantheon. Verse 22, the crowd joins in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them, stripped them naked, and gave orders to beat them with rods. Not exactly the same as the Jewish 39 lashes, but pretty bad. 
It would have opened up wounds, possibly broken bones. I mean, imagine going through this kind of physical pain. Could you go through it? It's just, to me, it seems like I'm way too wimpy to do this. Um, I know as I've gotten older, like, and I try to every once in a while do a sport or play a sport, and I fall down once, it's like three days before I stop feeling how I fell down three days before. I mean, if I watch people fall down, I start to get, I start to hurt. You know what I'm saying? Uh, imagine getting beat with rods and left, you know, broken bones, maybe bruises, whatever the case may be. Verse 23, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Keep them safely, jailer. But here they are enduring this awful beating for the name of Christ. Yet they had courage to go through it because that's a fruit of the gospel. Because of the gospel, they're enduring this persecution. But there's something that comes to them that is truly inexplicable. Truly inexplicable. When you think of possibly singing in light of this, being put into a prison, chains around their ankles, put hooked to the wall. You know, it reminds me of something we studied early in Acts 5 when Peter and company had a similar occurrence with the Sanhedrin. And it says in Acts 5, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Again, don't pass over. They beat them without thinking of how much that must have hurt physically. And then let them go. Then the apostles left the presence of the council. And what did they do? Rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Christ. So there's a joy that you actually receive when you endure something for the name of Jesus. Back to our text, verse 25. About midnight... Imagine the pain they're in laying there. They can't get comfortable with chains around them. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They were entreating God, and they were maybe singing the Psalms of David, maybe some early Christian hymns that we know existed, and they sang because of the gospel. They sang because they knew they were doing exactly what God had called them to do. They sang for joy. They sang because they knew their suffering would necessarily confront other people with the message they were bringing. Because people want to know, how are these t- guys taking a beating? And who are they taking it for? They're taking it for Christ. Necessarily, they now have opportunity to do the thing they were called to do, proclaim Christ, and they could do it because of their suffering. They didn't sing expressly aware of the deliverance that they might receive or not receive. They sang for joy about their salvation no matter what would happen to them physically. It reminds me of Martin Luther when he wrote in his famous hymn, that word above all earthly powers, the word of God, no thanks to them abideth, no thanks to those who persecute, the word of God still abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, and his kingdom will stand forever. Courage, persecution, and even joy come as a fruit of the gospel. These, the, the gospel and the truth of it will give you the strength you need when you're called upon to need it. The passage then ends in dramatic fashion, and we'll close looking at just those last few verses. Paul and Silas were brought to the jailer's home that night. Um, we read all that happened there. The baptism occurred. They ate some food um, and then returned to their cell for the next day. Um, there was certainly enough of a buzz in that city at that point about what had happened. Everyone knew about the earthquake, no doubt. Word had traveled fast enough to the magistrates. They were scared now because 
wow, this is clearly the hand of God upon them. Maybe the message they were preaching is true. Still, they haven't heard the worst of it yet, and, but they're concerned. Okay, this is something special with these guys. Let's get them out of here and move on. We're certainly not going to lose our necks for these, guy, these slave owners and this demon-possessed slave girl. Verse 35, but when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer then came to Paul and said, the magistrates have sent you, let you go. Come out and go in peace. Paul says, not so fast. We're not going to do it just like that. Now, it's not because Paul's vindictive. That's not the reason. The reason is this is the founding of the Philippian church. There is a legal opportunity for Paul here in his uh, ability to be savvy about such a situation to set up these believers for some uh, a bit of a reprieve from the pressure by noting who they are and what has just happened and that would cause them to back off and it allows time for the Philippian church to start to grow, cultivate and get bigger and stronger. Look at what happens. But Paul said to them, wait a minute. They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. And immediately bells are ringing for these guys when they realize they have, they have Roman rights, which would be unusual for most Jews. Men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly, trying to just cover this up? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Paul's just going to stay there until the magistrates themselves come and say sorry. The whole process, though, is making them think we cannot mess with these guys again. We've got to keep this, is, pretend this thing didn't happen. And by this time, there's all these people who have come to faith. Now they have room to breathe in their faith for some time. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us, men who are Roman citizens. The police went back and told the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison, and where did they go? They went to Lydia's, just on the outskirts, the big house she had. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them, and then they departed. They didn't stay long. They did leave, and they let the church at Philippi start to cultivate. It's possible Luke was left behind at this point to stay with the Philippian church and maybe minister there to help grow that church. Thus began a deep relationship between Paul and the newly founded Philippian church. I don't know about you, but when you go by places that uh, painful things happen, you may remember them. I know uh, some nine years ago when I had a terrible knee injury, it was the most painful thing I had dealt with. And I remember, uh, even now when I drive down 87th Street and go by the place where this indoor soccer place is, I just kind of get a little bit of, I don't even look to the left to see the building because I remember what it felt like. It just comes back to me. Um, the Philippian church, though, you would think he would remember the time he got beat there. Now, Paul got beat in several different cities, so maybe he, didn't, he got over that kind of way of looking at things. But the Philippian church took on a real uh, place in his heart. In fact, later when he wrote to the Philippians, uh, in the introduction to the book of Philippians, he says something that is more colorful now that we know the story. He said to them, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who began a work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are once again impressed with your power and your work as it's on display, especially in this story. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the salvation that you have provided for us through your work on our behalf. Please impress us so much with the gospel that we 
gain courage and joy even in the face of any persecution or suffering that may come because of it. Lord, I pray this in the powerful name of our risen Savior, Jesus. Amen.